Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In today's episode, we are going to continue our discussion of immigration and naturalization with genealogy lecturer and blogger Stephen Danko. In today's show, Stephen and I talk more about passenger lists and some of the ramifications of an immigrant being detained or deported. If somebody arrived in the United States and if they were deported or even detained, then the steamship line had a bill to pay. We'll also discuss some of the challenges of finding records prior to 1820 in the United States. So if you want to find records in Canada before 1867 or in the United States before 1820, you're going to have a tough time of it. There may have been records kept, but you're not going to find them very easily. And then we'll meet the challenge of locating naturalization records. It is a bit difficult to locate exactly which court those are in, but more and more of those are coming online. So um, eventually we hope that all of those are going to be online and indexed. In the meantime, some of them are easier to get than others. But before we hear from Steve, let's hear from you. And we'll do that at the mailbox. I really like getting emails from all of you listeners, and I'm happy to pursue answering questions and that kind of thing. But I also love hearing about your genealogy research, your successes, and some of the genealogical serendipity that can sometimes occur. And Sean Lamb wrote me this week from Wisconsin, and he writes, First, thanks for going through the work to put together such informative podcasts. I recently discovered the Genealogy Gems podcast and heard mention of the Family History podcast that you also produce. I downloaded all 27 episodes of the latter and listened to them on my long bus ride across town, finally catching up to the current episode today. Oh, good job. Glad to have you on board. (laughs) He says, I will soon start listening through the Genealogy Gems archives, too. Sean says that he lives in Madison, Wisconsin, and he writes, As I was listening to episode 26 about finding birth records this morning, I was thinking that I should take some time to return to the Wisconsin Historical Society Library and see if I could get my research a little farther along using the strategies that you outline in episode 23. The podcast discussion then turned to Google Books, a resource that I have used in the past to find early county histories, many of which are now in the public domain. And your guest mentioned that the Google crew had already scanned a large number of books from the very library that my bus was about to pass a few minutes later. My bus ride was long enough that I also listened to episode 27 this morning, where you discussed using newspaper archives to find additional information. My father recently sent me a link to an obituary in the New York Times from the early 20th century that noted the passing of my second great-grandfather, and after a little searching using Google News, I located two more obituaries and notice of a change in church leadership at St. Francis Xavier Church in New York City that involved other other members of my family. 
When I passed that information back, a family friend sent images mentioning this family in all the U.S. Census population schedules from Ancestry.com that added two more family names to my research plan. It seems the fates are conspiring to get me more active in my research again. My podcatcher is downloading episode 28 now, and I look forward to listening to it and future episodes. Sean Lamb. Hey, Sean, thank you so much for your great email. It's uh, wonderful to hear how the podcasts kind of dovetail into each person's own research. That is really cool. I hope you'll stick with it and that we'll keep you hooked on genealogy. And it also looks like Sean is hooked on model railroads. Uh, I noticed on the bottom of his email his website address, and I went and checked it out. You can also check out his website, and it's at riptrack.net. And it's all about his passion for model trains and train history. And Sean has just published his first podcast episode, also all about trains. And you can also find that on his website. You know, my daughter's father-in-law just retired and is now going to get his trains back out and use his son's old room as his train room. So I'm going to be sure and tell him all about Sean's show and the website. Well, as always, it's great to hear from you listeners, and if you'd like to write me, telling me about your research, your genealogical serendipity, or perhaps questions or comments, you can certainly do so. And of course, another great way to stay in touch is to sign up for my free e-newsletter. Just go to my website and click the sign up button. You'll get an email about every other week with information about the podcast, as well as some of my favorite genealogy gems like research tips and some terrific websites. And as a thank you for signing up, I'm going to send you a link to my 20-page ebook. It's called Five Fabulous Google Research Strategies for the Family Historian. And if you really enjoy the podcast, you may want to become a Genealogy Gems Premium Member, which will not only give you access to two members-only episodes every month, but you'll also get access to all the instructional videos. Um, The current series is called Google, A Goldmine of Genealogy Gems. You can watch as I walk you through Google to its full potential in real time on the computer screen. These videos teach you how to get a lot more out of Google than you ever imagined was there. And of course, all of them are geared specifically to family history research. So if you want to join me as a member, just head to genealogygems.tv, click the Join Today button, and you can start using the videos and the members-only podcast episodes right away. Now it's time to head back to my conversation with Stephen Danko, where we pick right back up with passenger lists. Now, you mentioned, and it's a good clarification, that the passenger lists that we're finding, that we're looking at, were actually completed in at the port of departure in the old country, not when they arrived in Ellis Island. And so these are like a secondary set of lists or information that the, the line itself was keeping back in the old country? Right. Um, the passenger lists that we're mo- most familiar with, especially the Ethel Ellis Island lists, those were lists that were required by the United States government. And so they were filled out in the old country. And once the passengers got to the, in the United States, those were turned over to the United States government. Okay. But these other records were maintained in the original location where they were originally written. 
Which I don't think ma- makes sense, because one of the things you mentioned in your presentation was that for the person who got sent back, that line had to kind of uh, do an accounting and, and pay a bill for that person, didn't they? Right. If somebody arrived in the United States, and if they were deported or even detained, then the steamship line had a bill to pay. I showed some examples today of people who were detained for, in one case, 10 days at Ellis Island while the uh, immigration officials determined whether or not this family was going to be a public uh, charge. They were were listed as LPC, likely public charge. The government thought that the government would end up having to pay to support this family if they arrived because this particular family consisted of a woman who was pregnant and her two young children – And as far as the government was concerned, it didn't appear that she had any visible means of support. So they held her for 10 days, and the records show that, in fact, uh, she and her children ate a lot of meals on Ellis (laughs) Island. And we know that the the steamship company that brought them was obligated to pay for those meals. So the steamship company had um, an incentive to really check folks out before they put them on a ship, because if they came back, um, it was going to cost them money. Right, yeah. In the case that I showed this morning, the woman and her two children were eventually admitted. But if you look down on the same list, a small way below them, you can see a couple of people who were not allowed to stay, and they were deported. Mm -hmm. In fact, it even gave their uh, date and ship of deportation, so we can tell when they had to go back. And if they went back, well, it was the steamship company again that had to pay for their passage back. So it's it's true that in the most modern records, you're going to find the most information. The further back you go in time, it, it kind of dwindles off. Is there a point where uh, we're no longer going to find the microfilmed lists, even though people were still being sent over on ships? Are we moving into book form? What, what, what can we look for as we get further back in time? Yeah. If you go back in time farther than 1820, uh, there were no requirements uh, to keep passenger lists in the United States before 1820. For Canada, I believe the year is 1867. Much later. Right. So if you want to find records in Canada before 1867 or in the United States before 1820, you're going to have a tough time of it. There may have been records kept but you're not going to find them very easily. <laughs> so you might need to uh, enlist some professional help or check in with the Family History Library, and I'm sure they've got some resources and things, or certainly all of the message boards and, and blogs like yours that can deal with some of those more specific issues. So if we've uh, gotten lucky and gotten our hands on that passenger list, we want to kind of then move back forward in time a little bit and go back and get that naturalization and immigration record, right? And that's at the county level. It, well, it, it could be at the county level. Um, it could be in a federal court as well. Oh, okay. And if it is a bit difficult to locate exactly which court those are in, but more and more of those are coming online. So um, eventually we hope that all of those are going to be online and indexed. In the meantime, some of them are easier to get than others. Uh, For Massachusetts, for example, if you were lucky enough to have your ancestors uh, be naturalized in Massachusetts, most of those older 
naturalization papers are available on microfilm at the Massachusetts State Archives and in the Family History Library as well. That's not the case for every part of the country, uh, but there are certain places where you can find microfilmed naturalization records. Some of them are indexed in a, a paper index, mm-hmm. although they're not necessarily indexed online yet. Um, but it's it, it's a tough thing to find. Once you find those records, it can be a gold mine. It can. <laughs> I, I showed one today for my my great aunt Mary, and it shows on her naturalization papers. Uh, it showed her name the date of her birth, the place of her birth, the date of her marriage, the name of her husband, her husband's birth date, her husband's birthplace, the names, dates, and places of all her children's births, and the date of her naturalization. Oh, and the date of the date of her arrival as well, and the ship she came on. So it's, it's like one-stop shopping for records. <laughs> right. Right. In her case, it was as much information as I could have ever hoped to find in a single record. In fact, that record, when I found it at the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, I was making a photocopy of it, and one of the uh, volunteers there at the library came over to help me. And once she saw the record, she made a copy of it too, so she could show her, her colleagues all this information that was on it. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Now, let's head on back to my conversation with Stephen Danko. And I know, in my case, um, even if you go a little bit later in time, you're going to possibly find a photograph, right? That's absolutely correct, yeah. You can find photographs on there, and uh, you know, that's, that's just a great bonus. You'll often see their signature as well. And didn't you, I remember I asked you the question during your presentation that if they did have a certificate of arrival issued, that that would likely be found with this packet of information for their naturalization. Right. The ones I've seen so far have been microfilmed with, with all it. of the, the naturalization records. So um, they'll all be in one place. Finding the certificate of arrival in itself isn't isn't that exciting. There isn't that much information on it. Yeah. It just tells you the information that's on the original passenger list, and it only tells you a small portion of that. But the nice thing about it is that the passenger lists themselves cross-reference the certificate of arrival, and once you know when the certificate of arrival was, was written, you have a good clue as to when the person was naturalized. And that's a good example of when, if you are fortunate enough to find those naturalization papers first, chances are it's going to be a hop, skip, and a jump over to passenger list because you're going to find all the data you need there, right? In most cases, that's true. Uh, my great, great aunt Stefania didn't work that way, though, <laughs> because I did find her naturalization records first. And on her naturalization records, it said, uh, it asked, when did you arrive and on what ship did you arrive? She didn't remember. Um, When when she was naturalized, that wasn't required. It wasn't a certificate of arrival. wasn't wasn't required. But she she didn't remember, and uh, uh, 
eventually I did find her natural or her passenger arrival list, but it wasn't all that easy. It would have been easier if I had known the name of the ship. Mm-hmm. I love the story when you said that, I don't know if it was her, but one of your female ancestors all of a sudden became 10, ten years younger when she got to the States, didn't she? <laughs> That's right. That was my great Aunt Mary. That's right. Yeah. I have her birth and baptismal record from Poland, and I have the Immigration Passenger Manifest. In fact, I have her departure records from Europe, her the Immigration Manifest in the United States, and I have her certificate of arrival. And all those documents give one birth date. Any record after she arrived shows that she's 10 years younger. Yeah. <laughs> It's I think I need to make a trip across the seas and come back and <laughs> redo that date. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and I guess finally, just for anybody who hasn't yet found um, immigration, well, naturalization paperwork, I should say, um, tell us a little bit, just an overview of the, the two types of documents you're going to be finding. Because there's a, it's a kind of a two-step process, right? There's the, um, well, there's the petition for naturalization, which is actually the second paper. And the first one is... Uh, Oh, declaration of declaration intent. intent yeah. yeah. So, so first somebody would file a declaration of intent, and then after they file that, they had a certain time period in which they had to complete the naturalization process. At which time they would file the petition for naturalization, and they would be granted, at the successful conclusion of that, a uh, cer- certificate of naturalization. So typically people will see three documents. Those three would be the declaration of intent to become a citizen, the petition for naturalization, and the certificate of naturalization. And you might actually even consider there's a fourth document there. That's the certificate of arrival Mm -hmm. if the person was naturalized after 1926. Right. And again, those are just filled, probably one of the most robust documents that you can find, genealogically speaking, and and so critical because um, when we're going when we're talking about moving into a whole other country to research, every bit of information helps, doesn't it? It absolutely does, especially uh, trying to figure out the village in which they were born. Um, I've looked at a lot of documents from my grandfather Konstantin Nijokovsky, and. Some of the documents say that he was he was from Pomoski, Poland. Some say that he was from Warsaw, Poland. Um, Pomoski is just north of Warsaw, so this might be a case where he was born in Pomoski, but Warsaw was a much bigger city, and therefore, you know, everybody knows where Warsaw is. Nobody knows where Pomoski is. Uh, however, I haven't been able to find a birth or baptismal record for him in either of those places. Oh, so even though all of his records, including his passenger manifest and his naturalization records, say that he's from Pomoski, I can't find any record for him there. So mm-hmm. I don't know where he was born. Um, a lot of those documents don't say where you don't ask where were you born. They ask where was your last residence. Right. And so I'm not sure where my grandfather was born. <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure it's not Pomoski. I have a, I have a similar dilemma. Yeah, they he, and it actually asked what what town were you born, and he gave the name of the of the village, and there isn't a Sporowski to be found there. So there must be something else to it. And when you find that out, then you tell me, right, so I can <laughs> chase it down. Steve, thanks so much for giving us a great overview of the documents that are available in this whole immigration process and naturalization. And um, certainly people can learn more and follow your own research journey on your blog. It's uh, www.stephen.com. 
D-A-N-K-O.com. Great. So stevendanko.com. Steven Danko, thanks so much. Thanks. Oh, well, my thanks go out to Stephen Danko for joining me on these episodes that were devoted to immigration and naturalization records. Um, we covered a lot of ground, and I really hope that you got some gems out of that, and it will help you find these exciting records. And if you'd like more information on items that we talked about specifically in these episodes, you can visit my website for the show notes, where you'll also find a list of links to all the websites that we talked about. And if you like this free podcast and you find it helpful, oh, I'd love it if you'd spread the word to your friends and your genealogy society and uh, help introduce them to free podcasts all about genealogy. Um, please share my website address, of course, genealogygems.tv, and let them know that when they get there, they not only find the two free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast and this one, Family History, but they're also going to find lots of informative videos, instructional videos, uh, and other kinds of research resources. And don't forget to get your free copy of my ebook, Five Fabulous Google Strategies for the Family Historian. And you get that free just for signing up for the free e-newsletter at my website. Here's a final thought for today. William Williams, Ellis Island's commissioner in 1902, posted the following notice around Ellis Island. Immigrants must be treated with kindness and consideration. Any government official violating the terms of this notice will be recommended for dismissal from the service. Any other person so doing will be forthwith required to leave Ellis Island. It is earnestly requested that any violation hereof or any instance of any kind of improper treatment of immigrants at Ellis Island or before they leave the barge office be promptly brought to the attention of the commissioner. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.